Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Lord, open our ears and our hearts to your word this morning. And as we leave here today, I pray that we would uh, be feet that bring your good news to all we come in contact with. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin this morning and ask you a question. Um, Have you ever received really bad advice from anybody? Now, most of the time, that's not the question you ask. It's good advice, but we'll get to that. But I wanted to start uh, with that question. And I went online, and Jimmy Fallon on his show had this deal where people were writing in about really bad advice they had received. So I wanted to read a few of these, um, because it will help set up some really good advice that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. Here was one of them. As a kid, after I got dizzy from spinning around, my big brother told me, just spin the other direction to cancel it out. That didn't work so well. My dad told me blue-eyed bumblebees don't sting, so I went around grabbing bumblebees to see what color their eyes were. Not getting father of the year for that one. Another one, a friend used to tell me when I got stuck on a math problem to multiply it by zero because math isn't real anyway. I'm not sure the teacher would have liked that one. Um, This dad, on the first day of school, said to his daughter, who was a new teacher, just graduated from college, it's the first day of school, go into lunch and just punch the biggest kid. Nobody will mess with you then. Probably the last day of her job if she followed through on that one. And then finally, uh, this is my favorite. This girl writes, I was a senior in high school, and someone told me my blinker was out, and I needed to get blinker fluid. So I went to AutoZone and asked for it. You know, fortunately, most of the time, it's the bad advice that we don't remember. But it's the really good advice. Perhaps when we were younger, people who were influential in our lives, people who helped us when we were stuck, maybe get from point A to point B. I think of a a significant event that happened to me several years ago when I got ordained. And it was several people in the kind of timeline of my life who encouraged me in ministry. When I came to church here, it was Greg and the vestry and many friends, including my spouse, who encouraged me to take the next step for ordination. It's something I don't regret. I remember an English teacher who encouraged us all by making us do a lot of public speaking my senior year when none of us liked it. But he said, if you don't do it, you're not going to get better. I know, not rocket science, but again, the repetition uh, proved to be true for all of us the more we got in front of people. And then I remembered a youth pastor who took an interest in my crazy friends and I, invited us to a camp, uh, introduced us to Christ, showed us a ton of grace, and guided us in our new faith. What about you? Can you think right now of people, maybe it was coaches, teachers, parents, brothers or sisters, who offered you great advice? Perhaps it was a pastor or somebody in your past that helped you in your faith. Maybe when you were at that crossroads in life. Well, the good news this morning is the writer of Hebrews, as he concludes this letter to this house church of Jewish believers in Christ, has some final words for this group. And these, are, these words are words of advice, words of encouragement. You see, this was a church, a group of believers that had a lot of pressure just to give up. For them, following Christ oftentimes meant loss of employment, 
loss of their businesses as people persecuted them socially. Sometimes it was jail, physical punishment. Sometimes it was, this is just too difficult. It'd be easier just to go back to what I was before. They're just getting lethargic, burned out, and they didn't want to be different. They didn't want to be a follower of Christ. So over the last several weeks, I've been going over chapter 12, and now we're going to chapter 13 of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews is much like a coach with a team who's encouraging them not to quit, not to give up, reminding them of what they're part of. And now here's some final words for them, some things to put into practice that will help them as they connect their uh, lives with their faith. So backing up, I know many of you have not been here over the last few weeks, so very briefly, I'm going to give you the highlights of what I've talked about. But first, right before Greg left for vacation, he covered chapter 11. And he talked about the great faith chapter. And he talked about how you and I can have the security of eternal life when we put our faith and trust in Christ. It was one of the points in his sermons. So the next week, before I started chapter 12, I read you that pivotal verse in chapter 39 and 40, where it says, when it talks about these faith people, and he says, these were all... These people were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Another translation says, we were needed to make their history of their lives complete. In other words, we're significant. We count. God has called us to put our faith in Christ. And in light of this, in the first three verses in chapter 12, the writer reminds the, these young believers that they're surrounded, not just with the body of other believers, but all these great faith people in the past. They're surrounded by that holy community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit in comforting them and helping them to live out the faith. We talked about how it's important to d- travel light, not carry sin, which clings to us so easily. We talked about the importance of fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who went before us, the pioneer and author of our faith. And then last week, we talked about how we're part of something that is going to last, God's unshakable kingdom. The writer of Hebrews writes these words, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe that what we're a part of is not something like the latest fad that will just go away because, you know, something new will come into town. This is something that will remain. We also learned that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How when Cain killed Abel, that blood condemned him. But the blood of Christ forgives us who all were guilty of sin, of going our own way. This is a kingdom that lasts, that has grace and has forgiveness. And we're all invited into that. And today, this author coaches these young believers and coaches us today to put our faith into practice in the everyday ups and downs of our life. Why was this necessary? Well, back then it was necessary because like I told you, they had a lot of persecution. They were getting tired. It wasn't easy. And for us today, I think it's necessary because so oftentimes... I think what we hear about on Sundays doesn't translate into our day-to-day lives. That's why so oftentimes you'll hear of a Sunday school teacher who was frauding people out of money, or a Christian leader 
who has a moral lapse, somehow what they were talking about or what they were learning or teaching wasn't translating in day-to-day life. Gordon MacDonald, a Christian writer, in his book, Forging a Real-World Faith, talks about the importance of this too. He said, when Christ-following truth is no longer spoken in street language, when it's no longer directed at street life, and when no longer challenges men and women to live as Christ followers in those streets, there is no longer a chance for real-world faith. People are tamed, learning how to act with deafness inside their religious institutions, but they do not learn how to faithfully live out their faith in the real world. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to do today. He wanted those believers back then to live out their faith in the real world every day. So here's this first bit of advice for all of us. And I know this is going to sound very elementary, maybe even like Sunday school, you know, for when you're in vocation Bible school. But it's the most difficult thing, yet it's the most profound. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Why is this so significant? Well, John, the apostle of love, as he was known, writes this, We love because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This was significant. This is why God sent Christ, to let us know that we are loved, that we didn't deserve for him to come and die for us so we can have access to God, have eternal life, have faith, have his presence in our lives. St. Catherine of Siena in the 14th century wrote these uh, profound words. We are such value to God that he came to live among us and to guide us home. He will go to any length to seek us, even to be lifted high upon the cross, to draw us back to himself. We can only respond by loving God for his love. So keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The word in Greek was Philadelphia, as you know, the city of brotherly love. Now, if you've been to a Philadelphia Eagles football game, maybe you didn't sense a lot of brotherly love, especially if you weren't wearing an Eagles shirt. But that's where it got its name. My wife's from Brazil, and as you know, I know a tiny bit of Portuguese, but the word for son and daughter is filio or filia, from the same word, that Philadelphia. So this love we're supposed to have for each other as the body of Christ is like we'd have for our own child or a brother or sister in a healthy relationship. So it starts at home, as they always say, right? But this in a positive way. We're supposed to find ways to love each other, not just saying, hey, I love you, I love you, and then ignoring each other when we go through struggles but a love that cares in real ways for the needs of each other. That's where it starts. Then the writer goes, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. it." In Middle Eastern culture, to give you a little context, this verse, there wasn't Motel 6s everywhere or Marriott's. A matter of fact, the inns, and a lot of people traveled in those areas because it was a place of trade, all these towns. If you look at the geography there, people came from the east and the west through there. And it was very dangerous and expensive to stay at one of these places. So it was very common in that culture to offer hospitality to strangers. And the writer is telling these people to do that and do more of it. That's why if you saw that movie Lone Survivor, which takes place in Afghanistan... The Pashtun uh, tribe discovers that Marine who's the only one who survived out of, the, out of the four, the Navy SEAL. And they said that their ancient code obliged their people to help and protect anyone in need, friend or enemy. 
So they helped the seal, even at the peril of their own life, with the Taliban uh, who could have come and destroyed their whole families. But the guy said, look, by rescuing and keeping him safe for five nights in our home, we were only doing our cultural obligation. See, it was ingrained in their culture. And the writer of Hebrews wants them to remember that following Christ does not negate this. It should increase this. It should magnify this, this love of stranger. Some of you might say, I don't know any strangers. Well, obviously, if you, you don't know strangers because they're strangers, correct? <laughs> but if we're honest, at least the way um, most neighborhoods are, most people don't even know their neighbors. So their neighbors are strangers. So begin there. Begin with those people around you. Find ways to help out. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you so you can care for the needs of others. You know, in that line that says people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it, it's very confusing. Some scholars are like, what is going on here? But I think what the writer is trying to do, because he goes through, and this, this, this audience was very familiar, obviously, with the Old Testament. It was a Jewish audience. Going back to Abraham, when he entertained these three angels without possibly knowing it, inviting them into his home and feeding them. So in other words, the best way I can translate it today is that taking care of strangers is holy work. It's not just an option. Maybe I'll help some strangers. The Greek word is philio xenos, which is like that word xenophobia, fear of strangers. This is the love of strangers, just like a brother or sister or son or daughter that we care for the needs of others deeply, not just like a robot, but with passion. In Jesus' words in Matthew 25, they kind of hammer this point home. He says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go for a visit? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. C.S. Lewis uh, expands this point, or actually kind of describes it in other words. He says, and as all Christians know, there is another way of giving to God. Every stranger whom we feed or clothe is Christ. This is holy work to look after strangers, to love each other. The writer goes on with some other advice for us. He says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who were mistreated from culture as if you yourself were suffering. This remembering they talk about, the translation of that is a compassion. Compassion means with passion. You're not just thinking about, oh yeah, there's people in prison, but you have empathy for them. You care about them. That empathy leads to action. See, back then in the context of that Middle Eastern culture, The prisons there, their basic needs oftentimes weren't even met. They didn't even have food half the time. They're living on a starvation diet, not having clothes. So there was a real need to help prisoners. But again, the writer just doesn't want us to think about it. He wants us to do it. Years ago, there was a very popular uh, heresy that was going around this book called The Secret. And in this book, The Secret, it was basically saying that if you ask the universe things that you want, the universe will give it to you. It's like the law of attraction, they called it. And they talked about how if you put things like on the wall in your bedroom, like things you want, like a new car, a new house, a puppy that's already potty trained, whatever it is, uh, 
you put it on that wall, and then, it, you know, if you're nice and good, the universe is going to give that back to you. Well, that's very wrong, biblically, but um, that's a whole other point. But what I want to, my whole point with this is, we're called to have our focus on Christ. And when we focus on Christ, he's going to put other people in our heart. We're going to want to care for them. We're going to want to do for things for them. Their face is going to keep flashing before us. Those are the things we're supposed to be about, not stuff that rusts or rots or fades away. That's where our love is supposed to be uh, focused on. See, what you think about all the time is really what you become. And as Christians, we're supposed to focus on Christ and we become more like him. And Christ loves people. And then we become better lovers of people through the help of the Holy Spirit. We saw this love of stranger and those in prison, uh, perhaps uh, most famously in those stories of so many different people from different backgrounds who helped people in World War II, Jewish people who were going to the concentration camps. If you've read the story of Corrie Tin Boom, the Christian lady, out of great risk to the family and eventual imprisonment in the concentration camps, helped many Jews escape. We've heard of the story, if you, read, if you saw the movie Schindler's List, again, of this business guy helping all these Jewish people who were uh, in danger of imprisonment and death and torture, or, death, or torture and death. There's another story that's not as famous, but it was in Libya and Algeria, where there was concentration camps as well. Most people don't know about that in, uh, in North Africa. But there was a mosque actually in Paris that was helping these people that were in the Jewish people there by telling the folks there that they were Muslim, even knowing they weren't, and brought many people to freedom that way. So again, we see in this culture, even people who weren't believers in Christ, who had this ingrained in them to help out strangers, to help out those in prison, but we're called to do more of that, for that to become a part of us, our DNA. As American Christians, I know some of you may be from different countries, but you're in America right now, so right now you are an American Christian. We're called to do that. When do we see, when do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothely? When, clothes and clothe you. When do we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? Whatever you did for the least of these, you've done it unto me. The reading that I read concludes with two other points, and they're really other sermons, so I'm going to touch on them briefly, but they fit with the other points. The writer says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. Unlike popular belief, marriage was tough back then as it is now. Divorce was just as common then as it was back now. And the writer was encouraging these young believers to don't neglect their spouses. It's very difficult in ministry. Oftentimes we've seen many marriages that fall apart because a pastor or a Christian leader is so busy tending the flock, so to speak, that they neglect those at home. And the writer, again, is telling this great advice. No, don't neglect your spouse. Have that same kind of love, but a deeper love than you would even for each other in the church, the body of Christ, for strangers, for those in prison. And then it says this, he says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. This is the one uh, part of the translation where it says, don't do this. You're supposed to love each other, love strangers, love those in prison, love your spouse, but don't love money. Money is good, you can do things with it, but don't become so focused on money that you miss out what God would have you do. In scripture, we know that money is there to be a blessing for other people. 
And yes, it can be a really good thing, but we're not supposed to love it. It needs to be in its proper place. And finally, in the last part of this passage, the writer says this, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And listen to this part. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not fade. Faith in him does not fade. It's not the latest fad. It won't be gone tomorrow. It's the foundation to build our lives on as believers, our faith in Christ. So how about you? Is there a disconnect between your faith on Sundays and trying to live this out in all the pressures of everyday life? I think if most of us are honest, we know that it's very difficult sometimes when we get frustrated or go through tough times. Even though we say it's easy to love one another, if we're really honest, it's not that easy. C.S. Lewis understood this, and he wrote this in his book, The Four Loves. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and littered luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. He's talking about our hearts. See, it isn't possible to love on our own. But when we humble ourselves before Christ, he will lift us up. He will give us the ability to love other people, to love those in our body of Christ here, to love strangers, to have empathy and care about those in prison to love our spouses, and to have money in its proper place. We can't do it on our own, but that is really good news. We have help. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, surrounded by that holy community, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a great coach, the Holy Spirit, that's guiding us every day, that's telling us to focus our lives on Christ, to not give up, to not quit, reminding us that what we're a part of will not fade away. It will last. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to end uh, the sermon with a, go back a few chapters to chapter 10, because I think this is a, a verse that really sums up what the book of Hebrews is all about. Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verse 23 through 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great advice that was given by this writer of Hebrews this advice to put our love in practice on a daily basis, that our faith was never meant to be something we put on a shelf through the week, but an everyday faith. Help us this week to humble ourselves before you so that you can lift us up and give us the ability to love those closest to us, those strangers, those that are suffering and in prison. Lord, guide us this week. Help us to continue to meet together and not give up. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.